1973, J.I. Packer wrote his well-known book, Knowing God. And in it, he said, and I quote, Modern muddle-headedness and confusion as to the meaning of faith in God is almost beyond description. Men say they believe in God, but they have no idea who it is that they believe in or what difference believing in Him makes. So the Christian who wants to help his floundering fellows into what a famous old track called safety, certainty, and enjoyment is constantly bewildered as to where to begin. The fantastic hodgepodge fantasies regarding God that confronts him quite literally takes his breath away. How on earth have people gotten themselves into such muddle-headedness? I just think, that was 1973. I would be fascinated to hear what J.I. Packer would say about our current culture. Let's just think about some of the questions that are bewildering our culture and their complementary answers. Because there's nothing new under the sun. Number one, people have gotten into the habit now more than ever of following their own thinking rather than trusting the Word of God. So they are quicker than ever to listen to themselves rather than listening to Scripture. So we have to help them to be humble to be responsive to the word, dealing with all sorts of misconceptions and misunderstandings, especially as to who God is. Number two, people are prone to think all religions are created equal and therefore are equivalent. So there's no difference between one and another and therefore no distinction. I mean, what's the difference? All roads lead to God, right? And all dogs go to heaven. No. They don't. We have to help them understand the exclusivity and the finality of faith in the Lord Jesus and his finished work on the cross, that he's God's last word and man's last chance at eternal life. Number three, people have ceased to recognize the reality or the seriousness of their sin which imparts an enmity between them and God. So we have to try and help them come to grips with who they really are. Put a mirror in front of their face, if you will, so that they might see their sin, but not only see their sin, but respond to the work of Christ. And number four, people are so prone to separate the justice of God from the mercy of God. So they're quick to acknowledge God, but it's not the God of the Bible. Instead, a God who's infinitely forbearing and kind, not at all interested in justice or judgment. Packer calls it the doctrine of the celestial Santa Claus. So sin creates no problem. The cross has no meaning and the atonement is really not necessary. So God's favor extends just as quickly and just as extensively to those who reject God, reject his person, his work, and his commandment as to those who love God, believe in God, obey God, know God, and are doing all that they can to live for the glory of God. So it's obvious, isn't it, that in this current culture, this society saturated with self-thinking, self-help, and self-generated truth, that we must turn to the Bible. And let the Bible instruct us on who God really is. 
including his great acts of judgment that he unleashed on the Egyptians in the book of Exodus and how they point forward to the judgment endured by the Lord Jesus Christ on the cross for his people. But it's also a picture of the judgment that will be endured by those who choose not to believe in Jesus. So critical for us this morning to truly understand the God of the Bible and that he's a God who judges. If you would go ahead and open your Bibles to Exodus chapter 7 verse 8. Grab my outline from your bulletin. As you can see, the title is Great Acts of Judgment. Exodus 7 is on page 49. As you're flipping, let me give you a quick review of where we've been in the book of Exodus. As you know, Exodus is a continuation of Genesis, where God made some pretty incredible promises, including the fact that Israel would be a great name, great nation, great blessing, and have great land. But in chapter 1, right, the Israelites are enslaved in Egypt. And yet, God's promises are unstoppable because the people are multiplying. Chapters 2 to 4, God is raising up a deliverer, Moses, who is protected and prepared, equipped and encouraged to free God's people from slavery and take them all the way to the promised land. But in chapters 5 to 7, things go from bad to worse. Because when Moses says, let my people go, Pharaoh rejects God, really disobeys God. So instead of listening to God, he makes things worse for the Israelites, requires the same level of production, but now without all the materials. And as a result, the people question Moses, and in turn, Moses questions God. But God responds by revealing himself in even greater ways. That's chapter 6, verses 1 to 8, and declaring with great clarity exactly how this thing is going to unfold. That's chapter 7, verse 4. Go ahead and look there. Look at what it says. Pharaoh will not listen to you. Then I, God, will lay my hand on Egypt and bring my hosts, my people, the children of Israel, out of the land of Egypt. How am I going to do that? By great acts of judgment. And why am I going to do that? So that the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord. Now, isn't that incredible? So that the Egyptians shall know, not the Israelites, but the Egyptians, which means if the Egyptians know that I am the Lord, then the whole world knows that Yahweh is God and there is no other, that he rules and he reigns over all the earth. So that's what the 10 plagues are all about showcasing that Yahweh is God and there is no other, that he rules and he reigns over the entire earth, over all creation. The wind and the waters, the frogs and the gnats, the locusts and the infections, the diseases and the weather, and even the darkness, which means he rules and he reigns over the Egyptian gods, which is the main point of a prologue to the plagues. Follow along as I read Exodus chapter 7, verses 8 to 13. Then the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, When Pharaoh says to you, Prove yourselves by working a miracle, then you shall say to Aaron, Take your staff and cast it down before Pharaoh, that it may become a serpent. So Moses and Aaron went to Pharaoh and did notice, just as the Lord commanded. Obedience is going to be a major theme in this section. 
So Aaron cast down his staff before Pharaoh and his servants, and it became a serpent. Then Pharaoh summoned the wise men and the sorcerers, and they, the magicians of Egypt, did the same by their secret arts. For each man cast down his staff, and they became serpents. But Aaron's staff swallowed up their staffs. That, my friends, is what we call foreshadowing. God swallowing up the Egyptian gods. Or you could say the seed of the woman devouring the seed of the serpent. And yet, verse 13, still Pharaoh's heart was hardened and he would not listen to them as the Lord said. So we already know how this whole thing is going to end, don't we? God wins, right? There's going to be 10 plagues and the score is going to be God 10, Egyptians 0. God is going to dominate. It's not even going to be close. And we know that. Even as we begin. But that should cause you to ask the question, then why the process? Why the ten plagues? Well, it's so that we might know that Yahweh is God. The great I Am. And there is no other But it's also that we might know that disobedience will be judged. So salvation will come, but it will come in the midst of judgment. And that judgment will be horrific, unimaginable, terrifying. But there's be a pattern to the plagues. So what I want to do this morning is walk you through the pattern so you might see it. And then highlight the purpose of the plague so you don't miss the big picture ideas that God is revealing about himself. So let's start by understanding the fact that the first nine plagues can be broken down into three groups of three. And you see them right there on your outline. Round one, blood frogs and gnats. Round two, flies, pestilence, and boils. Round three, hail, locusts, and darkness. Now you might ask me, how do you know that there's three rounds of three plagues? Well, because there's a pattern, including the fact that plagues one, four, and seven, the blood, the flies, and the hail, all start with Moses finding Pharaoh in the morning. So that language is repeated in all three of those plagues. Plagues one, four, and seven, in the morning, he finds Pharaoh worshiping the sun god, Ray. Now remember, That's the serpent on his headdress who he's worshiping every single morning. He goes out every single morning and he worships Ray. Well, that's the God that God just devoured as we went through the prologue. But plagues 1, 4, and 7 all start in the morning. So very clear marker. They all have a clear focus on disobedience, that if you disobey Pharaoh, you will be judged. Then plagues 2, 5, and 8, frogs, pestilence, and locusts continue in a similar pattern, but progression. But plagues 3, 6, and 9, gnats, boils, and darkness are super short. No interaction with Pharaoh, no let my people go, no rejection, no disobedience, no attitude, just to plague themselves and Pharaoh's hardened heart. So that is a backdrop. Let me read through plague number one, God turning the water to blood. Follow along as I read Exodus 7, verses 14 to 25. Then the Lord said to Moses, Pharaoh's heart is hardened. 
He refuses to let the people go. Go to Pharaoh in the morning. Notice, in the morning, as he is going out to the water, stand on the bank of the Nile to meet him and take in your hand the staff that turned into a serpent. You shall say to him, The Lord, the God of the Hebrews, sent me to you, saying, Let my people go, that they may serve me in the wilderness. But so far, notice, you have not obeyed. Thus says the Lord, By this you shall know that I am the Lord. Behold, with the staff in my hand, I will strike the water in the Nile, and it shall turn into blood. The fish in the Nile shall die, and the Nile will stink, and the Egyptians will grow weary of drinking water from the Nile. And the Lord said to Moses, say to Aaron, take your staff and stretch out your hand over the waters of Egypt, over their rivers, their canals, and their ponds, and all their pools of water, so that they may become blood. And there shall be blood throughout all the land of Egypt, even in vessels of wood and even in vessels of stone. So all the water turned to blood, not just the Nile. Verse 20 says, Moses and Aaron did as the Lord commanded in the sight of Pharaoh and in the sight of his servants. He lifted up the staff and struck the water in the Nile and all the water in the Nile turned to blood. The fish in the Nile died and the Nile stank so that the Egyptians could not drink water from the Nile. There was blood throughout all the land of Egypt. But the magicians of Egypt did the same by their secret arts. So Pharaoh's heart remained hardened and he would not listen to them as the Lord said. Pharaoh turned and went into his house and he did not take even this to heart. And all the Egyptians dug along the Nile for water to drink for they could not drink the water of the Nile. So what's the typical pattern? Well, on God's behalf, verse 16, Moses and Aaron go into Pharaoh and declare, let my people go. Let my people go for what reason? That they might serve me. Notice how Pharaoh's disobedience is highlighted, but, but so far you have not obeyed. Verse 17, thus the Lord, by this you shall know that I am the Lord. Plague is announced. Then the plague happens. Then the magicians repeat it. That happens in the first two plagues. After that, I think the magicians actually believe in Yahweh, the God of the Bible. Remember chapter 7, verse 5, so that the Egyptians might know that I am the Lord. Then either Pharaoh pleads for mercy or God grants it, but either way, every single plague ends with either Pharaoh hardening his own heart or God hardening it for him. So that's the pattern. And what happens next? Well, verse 25 says, seven days pass, and then we do it all over again, right? Chapter 8, verse 1, then the Lord said to Moses, go into Pharaoh and ask and say to him, thus says the Lord, let my people go that they may serve me. But if you refuse to let them go, if you disobey, if you reject the fact that I am God and there is no other, behold, I will plague all your country. Second plague, frogs. But this is fun. Just look at the description. The Nile shall swarm with frogs that shall come up into your house and into your bedroom and on your bed and into the house of your servants and people and into your ovens and kneading bowls. The frogs shall come up on you and on your people and on all your servants. Frogs everywhere. Verse 6, the plague happens. Verse 7, the magicians duplicate. Verse 8, Pharaoh pleads for mercy. Verse 10, Moses responds. 
Be it as you say, so that you may know that there is no one like the Lord. Verse 13, frogs are taken away. Verse 15, Pharaoh hardens his heart. There's a pattern. Repeated pattern, very similar to plague number one. But then, if you look, plague number three is much shorter. Shorter than plague number one and plague number two. So only four verses for plague number three in comparison to 12 verses for plague number one and 15 verses for plague number two. I just want you to know there's a pattern. There's three sets of three plagues, and there's a pattern to those plagues. And we could easily spend time walking through each of the plagues. I actually would absolutely love doing that because I love details like that. That would be tons of fun. But I think what would be more helpful would be to look at, see, the purpose of the plagues. And we're going to do that, plague number one through plague number eight, and then we're going to let plague number nine point us forward to the Lord Jesus. So that's where we're going. So see the purpose of the plagues. There's obviously a reason for what God is doing here, right? I mean, there's a method to the madness. There's a reason for the season. So God is taking the Israelites and the Egyptians and us, I would suggest, through 10 plagues in order to reveal himself, in order to make himself known. And I've broken it down into these four purposes listed right there in your outline. Number one, the knowledge of God. Number two, the reality of distinctions. Number three, the need for obedience. And then number four, the instruction of children. So let's walk through those one at a time, starting with the knowledge of God. Now remember how this whole thing started back in chapter 5, verse 2. Right? Moses said to Pharaoh, let my people go. But how did Pharaoh respond? Well, he said, who is the Lord? that I should obey him. I do not know the Lord, so I will not let Israel go. God was crystal clear, chapter 7, verse 5, that through great acts of judgment, the Egyptians, Pharaoh, shall know, shall know what? That I am the Lord. That's exactly what's happening. Plague number one, verse 16, let my people go so that they might serve me. Verse 17, thus says the Lord, By this, you shall know that I am the Lord. So when I turn not only the Nile to blood, but all of the water in Egypt, I mean, did you catch how specific the text is? That even the water in the vessels was turned to blood. So it's not just the water in the river. The water in the pot turned to blood. Why? So that you might know that I am am the Lord. I cannot help but think of Jesus's first miracle. John chapter 2. What was Jesus's first miracle? He turned the water, not to blood, but to wine. Now, if you know the book of Exodus, why did Jesus do that? So you might know that I am the Lord, that Jesus is God. That's who he is. That's what he's saying. So all authority over the wind and the waters and all creation, including the Nile, which was at the heart of Egypt's life as a country, 
Because its people were totally dependent on it, which is why they considered it to be divine. So what's the point? Well, that God is the one who we're ultimately dependent on. God is God and there is no other. Plague number two, God sends frogs to cover the land and they're absolutely everywhere until Pharaoh pleads for mercy that tomorrow God might remove the frogs. He's very specific. Chapter 8, verse 10. And he said, tomorrow. Moses said, be it as you say, tomorrow, so that you may know that there is no one like the Lord our God. So God removes the frogs. When does he do it? Tomorrow. So he rules and he reigns over all things. He rules and reigns even over timing of all creation. Why? So you, the Egyptians, the Israelites, and us this morning, so all the earth might know that he is God and there is no other. Which becomes obvious, plague number three, with the gnats. Because the musicians reproduced plague number one and plague number two, but they're not able to pull off plague number three. So what do they conclude? Look at chapter 8, verse 19. Then the magician said to Pharaoh, this is the finger of God. So they recognize, don't they? These who are the magicians pulling all of this stuff off, they understand that what they're doing is a total sham. But the gnats, that's God. Only God can do that. Yahweh is God, and there is no other. So number one, the knowledge of God. Now number two, the reality of distinctions. Plague number four, the plague of flies. Now it's really helpful for you to know that plagues one through three happen to everyone. So both Egyptians and Israelites were affected by the water being turned to blood, the frogs, and the gnats. But as we move forward, plagues 4 to 10 will only happen to the Egyptians. So there's an escalation, right? There's a progression of intensity that's happening as we move forward. But again, the command, let my people go. And the warning, or else I will send flies. Verse 22, look at chapter 8, verse 22. But on that day, I will set apart the land of Goshen where my people dwell so that no swarms of flies shall be there. Why? So that you may know that I am the Lord. Then verse 23, God says, Thus I will put a division between my people and your people. Tomorrow this sign will happen. And it does. Great swarms of flies. But there's only flies in Egypt. Only flies in Pharaoh's house and his servants' houses and the Egyptians' houses. But not in the Israelite houses. Can you imagine how incredible that is? The ability to rule and reign over flies. So they swarm around those people, but they don't swarm around these people. Wouldn't that come in handy in the summer? I'm having a picnic outside, but I rule and reign over the flies, so they're going to go to your house, not to my house house. He rules and reigns over flies. Just wait, there's more. Plague number five, 
God sends a pestilence on the animals so that they might die. But chapter 9, verse 4, the Lord will make a distinction between the livestock of Israel and the livestock of Egypt, so that nothing of all that belongs to the people of Israel shall die. Verse 6, and the next day the Lord did this thing. All the livestock of the Egyptians died, but not one of the livestock of the people of Israel died. So God's making distinctions, isn't he? But you have to be clear. You have to be clear. Like, random distinctions? No. What distinction is he making? See, the distinction is between those who obey God and those who disobey God. Remember chapter 7, verse 16. God says, let my people go so that they might serve me. But so far you, Pharaoh, you, Egypt, have not yet obeyed. And they continue to disobey. Why? Because they haven't let God's people go. Hence number three, the need for obedience, which we see so clearly in plague number seven, the plague of hail. Again, God says, let my people go that they might serve me. And again, the warning, verse 14, for this time I will send all my plagues on you yourself and on your servants and on your people so that you may know that there is none like me in all the earth. What's the problem? It's right here, verse 17. You are still exalting yourself, Pharaoh, against my people and will not let them go. The issue is disobedience. So what does God do? He warns them that hail is coming like never before. Then verse 21, whoever feared the word of the Lord among all the servants of Pharaoh hurried his slaves and his livestock into the houses. Why? Because it's a hail like never before. And if you're outside in a hail like never before, you will die. But whoever did not pay attention to the word of the Lord, that is, disobeyed the word of the Lord, left his slaves and his livestock in the field. What was the consequence of disobeying the word of God? Death. If you disobeyed the word of the Lord, you died. Verse 25, the hail struck down everything that was in the field, both man and beast, and everything died. Verse 26, only that which was in the land of Goshen, where there was no hail, implication, lived. What a helpful application for us this morning. That we might be a people who know the God of the Bible and know the fact that He is a God who judges. So that we might be a people who obey His Word. And as a result of being a people who obey his word, live. I want you to listen to me. 
the words that you're hearing in our culture are inconsistent with the Word of God and therefore bring death. Anything that's appealing in our culture that makes sense is usually some flavor of what's in the Word of God. That's what makes it appealing. But there's lies. And those lies have consequences. And those consequences are death. Let us be a people who know the Word of God. Listen to the Word of God. Obey the Word of God. And live. Rather than listening to our culture and believing what Packer calls the doctrine of the celestial Santa Claus. And may we be those who not only believe it, but who are faithful, number four, to teach it to our children. Plague number eight, the plague of locusts. Just look at how chapter 10 begins. And the Lord said to Moses, Go into Pharaoh, for I have hardened his heart and the heart of his servants, that I may show these signs among them. Verse 2, And that you may tell them in the hearing of your sons and in the hearing of your grandsons how I dealt harshly with the Egyptians and what signs I have done among them that you and they and us generation after generation might know that I am the Lord. So instruct your kids. But what exactly? What exactly are you teaching your kids? According to this text, at least. That God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. And it doesn't matter what you believe about God. It doesn't matter how you respond to him. No. No. This text is teaching that God is God. And there is no other. And he is a God who makes distinctions. And he is a God who will judge. That's what we should be teaching our kids. Because that's exactly what the plagues teach us, don't they? That God is God and there is no other. And that he's a God who judges. Which means sin is a problem right? Sin really is that bad, and God's not going to tolerate it. But that doesn't mean that God's out of control, right? I mean, he isn't wrathful. He's not vindictive, capricious, or irritable. He's not blowing his stack or losing it with the Egyptians. Instead, every time, meaning every single time, he starts with the command. Let my people go so that they might serve me. But if you choose not to let my people go, there's consequences. If you choose 
to disobey, you will be judged. Here's the question. Are you getting that this morning? Because that's what it means in this context to know that God is God and there is no other. Because the God of the Bible is a God who clearly judges. But that also means that the God of the Bible is a God who saves. So it's always been and will always be a glorious salvation in the midst of a horrific judgment. And the best place to see that quite literally is the ninth plague, the plague of darkness. So as we transition from number one, the judgment of God on Egypt, to number two, the judgment of God on Christ, flip forward to chapter 10, verse 21. Let's read the ninth plague together. Exodus chapter 10, 21 to 27. Then the Lord said to Moses, stretch out your hand toward heaven that there may be darkness over the land of Egypt. Notice, a darkness to be felt. So Moses stretched out his hand toward heaven and there was pitch darkness, pitch black in all the land of Egypt for three days. So they did not see one another, nor did anyone rise from his place for three days. But isn't this incredible? All the people of Israel had light wherever they lived. Then Pharaoh called Moses and said, go serve the Lord. Your little ones also go with you. Only let your flocks and your herds remain behind. Moses said, you must also let us have sacrifices and burnt offerings that we may sacrifice to the Lord our God. Our livestock must also go with us. Not a hoof shall be left behind, for we must take of them to serve the Lord our God. And we do not know with what we must serve the Lord until we arrive there. But the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart, and he would not let them go. I want you to be clear. Darkness represents judgment. So A, judgment on Egypt. And there's a connection, isn't there, between the first plague and the ninth plague because Pharaoh gets up every single morning, early in the morning, to worship the sun god, Ray, all in celebration of his renewed victory over darkness and death. So Ray, if you will, is their god of light and life, which obviously go together, don't they? But Yahweh grips all of Egypt in darkness. And it's a darkness that is so dark, you can feel it. It's that dark. You know, I remember going with my kids to Mammoth Cave National Park in Brownsville, Kentucky, which has the longest known cave system in the world. So approximately 420 miles of underground passages. What does that mean? Well, it means you can walk for like two miles down into this cave with stalactites and stalagmites. I can never know which one is on the top and the bottom, but stalactites, stalagmites, and bats. 
And I remember walking down in this film of water on the surface of the rocks and every step that you would take down into the cave, two things were happening. One, I was thinking, do I really want to do this? Number two, I was thinking and feeling the temperature drop with every single step. You could literally feel the darkness. It was so eerie. Especially when the guide turned off the headlamp. Pitch black. You literally could not see your hand in front of your face. You're you're standing right next to somebody. Lights are on. They're standing right here. Here's your body parts right? And then the light goes off and you, you can't see this person. You can't see yourself. How often have you ever been there where you can't see your hand in front of your face? We, we don't ever get there, do we? Right, right, right. We, you know, in your bedroom, right? What do you do? This is what we do in our bedroom. We buy those, you know, light canceling shades. How do those things work? They don't, do they? Right? You, you put them up there, you stretch them across, you try to make them fit, right? You got to tape them to the wall. And what happens? The light comes in. We're never in a place like this with a darkness that you can feel. And it's not three seconds, and it's not three minutes, and it's not three hours. It's three days of darkness. You didn't see anybody. You didn't go anywhere. You didn't do anything. It's almost as if the nation of Egypt died. And yet, if you can feel that darkness, then feel the contrast. Because wherever the Israelites were, there's light. I mean, can you imagine the contrast? Because surely not all the Israelites lived in Goshen, right? Surely some of the Israelite slaves lived in Egyptian homes or at least went to Egypt in order to serve them. Again, just look at verse 23. But all the people of Israel had light wherever they lived. So wherever there was an Israelite, there was light. But wherever there was no Israelite, there was only light. Darkness, and it was so dark that it could be felt. Darkness means judgment. So, with that, let's consider B the judgment on Christ because Jesus endured three hours of darkness on the cross and then three days of darkness in the tomb. But before we go there, we have to start with light, right? Because the light of the Israelites also points forward to the light of Christ along with his miracles, right? John chapter 8, verse 12, Jesus tells us, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light 
of life. So Jesus, as the one true Israelite who perfectly obeyed God in every way, never sinned, never disobeyed, never stepped out of line, but kept God's commandments perfectly, perfect obedience, perfect allegiance, perfect righteousness, was in himself light. 1 John 1.5 says, God is light and in him there is no darkness at all. So when Jesus walked this earth, he was perfectly righteous. The only man who ever was holy. Jesus was the true light. But Jesus was also God. Demonstrated by his miracles. Right? His signs and his wonders. I mean, his first miracle matches the first plague, turning the water into wine. But Jesus also had authority over all creation, right? The wind and the waves. And he certainly healed sickness. And he could heal death, saying to people born lame, take up your bed and walk. Or to people who have leprosy, I am willing, be cleaned. Or to demons, come out. Or to Lazarus, come forth and live. Jesus demonstrated that he is God and there is no other. And he demonstrated that he is light. For in him there is no darkness at all. Well, now just put this together. Because that same Jesus, the God-man, who is light in and of himself, endured darkness. So we, he willingly endured God's judgment, God's wrath for three hours on the cross and then three days in the tomb. If you would, go ahead and flip forward with me to Mark chapter 15. Mark chapter 15, verse 33. It's on page 853 if you're using one of our Bibles. I want you to see this for yourself. These themes are in the Bible so that we might understand exactly what took place on the cross. Mark 15, verse 33, follow along as I read. And when the sixth hour had come, right? Jesus is crucified at nine in the morning. That's the third hour. The sixth hour is noon. And when the sixth hour had come, there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. So from high noon until three in the afternoon, the time when the sun is supposed to be at its highest and at its brightest, there's pitch black, a darkness that could be felt. Verse 34, and at the ninth hour, Jesus cried with a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lemma zabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? So God's wrath being poured out on God's son because darkness means judgment. So God's judgment on God's son. And some of the bystanders hearing it said, Behold, he is calling Elijah. And someone ran, filled a sponge with sour wine, put it on a reed and gave it to him to drink, saying, Wait, let us see whether Elijah will come to take him down. Jesus uttered a loud cry. We know from the other gospels it is finished. And he breathed his last. And the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And when the centurion who stood facing him saw that in this way he breathed his last, he said, truly this man was the son 
of God. Now make the connection. Darkness is significant. It proves that Jesus really did take our sins upon himself. And Jesus really did die as our substitute. Isaiah 53 says, He bore our griefs and carried our sores. He was pierced through for our transgressions and he was crushed for our iniquities. So Jesus took all of our guilt. He took all of our shame because he took on himself all of our sin. And therefore rightly deserve God's wrath and God's judgment. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? So he willingly endured God's darkness, even though in and of himself, he was the light of the world. Then he went into the grave where he remained for three days, God's deepest darkness, if you will. But on the third day, he rose again from the grave in a body dazzling with the light of God's glory. And make the connection because the Roman centurion and the Egyptian magicians, each one of them, they saw all that happened. What did they see? They saw God's judgment. And as a result of seeing God's judgment, they believed. Right? That's the purpose of the judgment, right? So that all the earth might know that God is God and there is no other and that God is a God who judges. And the same is true this morning. Absolutely true for every single one of us. I don't want you to have any kind of modern muddle-headedness or confusion, as J.I. Packer puts it. I don't want you to have any modern muddle-headedness about the God of the Bible or the reality of judgment, or the opportunity of salvation, or the meaning of faith, or what it looks like to be a Christian. Instead, I'm praying for great clarity that God is God and there is no other, and that God is a God who judges. So you have to be clear this morning. You have to be crystal clear this morning. There is a judgment coming. Hebrews 9 27 says, first comes death, then comes the judgment. So if you're here this morning and you're not a believer, if you're not a Christian, or if you're here this morning and you have no problem whatsoever saying, yeah, 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 I'm with God, but you're not actually believing in Jesus for the forgiveness of the sin, or you're living for his glory, by the way, how would you know that? How would you know that you're a person who's professing to say, I am with God, but you're living as if you deny God? How would you know that? By your unbroken pattern of disobedience. Right? That's what we just saw with Pharaoh. Acknowledges God, tips his hat to God. Yeah, could you go plead for mercy? Then blows him off. Knowledge is God, but isn't obedient to God. Is that you this morning? Repeatedly disobeying God? If that's you this morning, then you need to know there is a judgment coming. 
Now be clear, right? I'm not saying you can earn your way to God so you can obey your way to God. And I'm certainly not saying you can obey your way into heaven. Salvation has always been, and salvation will always be by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. But that salvation is never alone. It's always demonstrated by consistent growing acts of obedience. So a radically changed life. That's why the Bible explains it as being born again or being a new creature in Christ, where you joyfully put off the old man and you obediently put on the new man. So if you're here this morning and you've got an unbroken, consistent pattern of disobedience in your life, then I'm here to warn you. Judgment is coming. Because God is God and there is no other. And God is a God who judges. But that also means that God is a God who saves. So I appeal to you this morning, if you fall into that category, come to Christ today, not tomorrow, today, right? Tomorrow might be too late. Come to Christ Now, today, acknowledge the God of the Bible. He is God and there is no other. And he is a God who judges, but he's also a God who saves. Oh, let today be the day of salvation for you. Allow Christ to take your judgment, the darkness of God's wrath that you rightly deserve. And allow him to make you a child of light. In fact, if you would, go ahead and flip forward to Ephesians 5. I want you to see how the Bible uses these themes so consistently, all the way from the Old Testament, Exodus, all the way to the New Testament, Ephesians chapter 5. Follow along as I read verses 5 to 10. It puts this together, children of darkness, children of light. Ephesians 5, verse 5. For you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure or who is covetous, that is an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Let no one deceive you with empty words. What's he saying? He's saying, don't be muddle-headed. That's what he's saying. Let no one deceive you with empty words. Don't listen to the culture. For because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Therefore, do not become partners with them. For at one time you were darkness. That's a synonym for sons of disobedience. Sons of disobedience are children of darkness. Look at the contrast. But now, he says... You are light in the Lord. Therefore, walk as children of light. Don't misunderstand what he's saying. When you believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, you are light. That's who you are. Therefore, walk as children of light. Faith causes you to be this person. And because you are this person, you can live like this. You are light in the Lord. Therefore, walk as children of 
Light, for the fruit of light is found in what? In all that is good and right and true and pleasing to the Lord. Dear unbeliever, the clear offer of Scripture is for you to come to the light so that you might escape the judgment. Come to the light. Believe in Jesus. Escape the judgment and allow him to make you children of light. Dear believer, the clear teaching of Scripture is for you to walk as a child of light. So not just good intentions, but actually doing that which is good and right and true and pleasing to God, which means you actually keep His commands and you walk in His ways. Jesus said it this way, Matthew 5, 16, Let your light shine. In such a way that they, who's the they? The world around us. That they may see our good works and glorify our God who is in heaven. Why is that? Because light is wonderfully different than darkness, isn't it? Light always, 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 always penetrates the darkness. So light cannot help but be noticed. What does that mean? It means light does not fit in. Light cannot be hidden. Light does not want to be hidden. It doesn't want to be forgotten. It cannot be forgotten. Why? Because you always see the light. You can't not see the light. And light has nothing to do with darkness. The light dominates the darkness. Oh my, is this helpful for us right now in our current culture? Dear believer, is your life gloriously different than the darkness around you? Think about this with me. This is language that you would use. I would not use this language typically, but you use this language, so I'll use this language. Right? Things get said like this. The world is going to hell in a handbasket. I would never say that. You would say that. Right? <laughs> but just think of the opportunity before us. If that's true that, that our world is going to hell in a handbasket, well, then what does that mean? Well, that means that the darkness is only getting darker. That's what that means, right? It's just getting worse. That's what you say to me all the time. It's only getting worse. Oh my goodness, I don't know where this is going. So the darkness is only getting darker. Well, then that means that the light should shine all the brighter, right? Do you hear what I'm saying? The light does not hide. The light penetrates the darkness. Oh, dear believer, be encouraged. You are light. And God calls you, he commands you to walk as children of light. Not afraid, not threatened, not hiding, penetrating the darkness. Dear believer, is your life gloriously different than the darkness around you? Only you can answer that question. Is the light of your life hiding? Or is it penetrating the darkness? What might that look like? How about, are you a person who is speaking truth 
into a culture that is filled with lies. Is that what you're doing? Are you penetrating the lies of our culture with truth? How about your behavior? Are you offering love where there's only hate? Are you bringing kindness where there's only hostility? Are you bringing acceptance where there's only rejection? We live in a cancel culture. Is that you? Hey, you got to clean your act up before you come to church. You got to look like something before we're going to accept you. Is that you? Or is there acceptance, grace, kindness, love, compassion in a world that is filled with rejection? Here's one. Is your life filled with humility in a world that is filled with pride? Light is radically different than darkness, beloved. Let us walk as children of light. Let our words be saturated with light. Let our actions be filled with light. Let your light shine in the midst of a dark and dying world in such a way that they might see your good works and glorify your Father who's in heaven. Allow me to pray to that end. Father, we're grateful. Jesus is light. And in him there was no darkness at all. And yet he endured. He endured darkness. Your wrath. So that we might have life. Father, I pray for every person here this morning that they might respond to the light of life, that they might believe in the Lord Jesus so that they might not walk in darkness but have the light of life. Father, I pray for my brothers and sisters in Christ that we would know that we are light in the Lord. That you've given us the gift of your spirit. You've saved us so we might live radically different than the world. Father, I pray that we would consider that an honor and a privilege. And that it would motivate us to walk as children of light. Father, we're asking that you would do that good work in, in, a, in our minds and in our hearts 
so that as we walk as children of light, you would be glorified. We know that you deserve all the glory and honor and praise. We pray all these things in Jesus' precious name. Amen.